0: Grant and Michelle, appreciate that. I really do appreciate the folks who are ministering to us in special music over this past year, uh, coming to the early service and singing and then coming back and singing at the 11 o'clock. and it's Double the nerves, uh, double the blessing for those of us who get to listen, but double the nerves for those who are doing it. So I really do appreciate that. First Peter is where we're going to be at this morning in our Bibles. First Peter chapter 1. Last week we got through verse 1. Uh, So at least we're off to a start, but we'll cover a little bit more ground today. And I think it would be a great blessing to you. Remember, Peter is penning down the words that the Holy Spirit of God is giving him to write. And remember, he's writing to this group of believers, Jewish uh, or Hebrew, I should say, but Hebrews who had put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, scattered abroad. Peter calls them strangers. That is, they were strangers in the land where they were, uh, they would have been citizens there. Um, They would have had earthly citizenship there. But spiritually, they were strangers there. Uh, The world was rejecting them as the world had rejected Jesus Christ. And the world was hating them the way the world had hated Jesus Christ. The world was lying about them the way that the world had lied about the Lord Jesus Christ. And And uh, I think of their situation and I think of this, what kind of glory, how honorable do you think it would have been for them uh, to live during that time in these locations? How honorable do you think it would have been? Well, I would say the very little honor. Uh, They were despised. They were rejected. They were viewed as outcasts. They were viewed as the problem. Uh and uh and so there was very little or no glory for them um at that time in their lives at that place in history. Um we like glory, don't don't we? We like recognition, we like compliment being complimented. We like when we're told, "Hey, you look great today." Or um uh, at least nice try. <laughs> yes, I don't know. Um but uh, we like being complimented. We like being encouraged. We like, we like recognition when we do something well. Um, the other day, we just had a little bit of snow, and I went out with my shovel, and that, my house faces north, and so the sidewalk leading up to the house is the hardest to keep clean because the shadow of the house and the sun, and it just doesn't get much sun, so it stays snowy and icy for the UPS men <laughs> and those kind of people. And so I went out there and I thought, I'll shovel that. Well, no one was at the house but me, and so I was clearing the sidewalk, and it cleared up a lot better than I thought it was going to. And I had this odd little thought that passed through my mind, and the thought was, I wish Cindy was there in the kitchen looking out to see how clean I got the sidewalk. Isn't that silly? But that's what I thought. I thought I wanted my wife to see what an awesome job I did with the shovel. In the on the sidewalk and, and that's just kind of how we are we 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 want to be appreciated we want people to notice and I don't know if you would have noticed that or not but uh, she says yes but we, we like to be noticed we like to be appreciated we like glory now the, the world uh, in this life lives for glory that is temporal It it comes and it goes and it's not eternal. The children of God, though, can live for glory that is eternal. And that is the the thrust of what Peter is going to be talking to these believers about. I think our world goes to great lengths to glorify people, to glorify accomplishments, whether it be education, um, intellectual accomplishments, or whether it be scientific accomplishments or athletic accomplishments might be the most obvious or physical accomplishments, these sort of things. In fact, we'll go so far as to erect monuments and statues. Why do we do that, by the way? It's interesting, and I think this proves the point, that the glory of this life is very temporal. In fact, it's so temporal that even if someone does something truly amazing, we actually have to erect monuments and statues and buildings. Otherwise, we'll actually forget them, (laughs) forget what they did. I mean, that's how temporal and fleeting the glory of this life actually is. We erect buildings to bring glory to, to, to groups of people or to a city or to a nation. And men use whatever they can to somehow say that they're important or that they're significant. We want to be remembered long after we're dead and gone. And in reality, great accomplishments of the past are soon forgotten, like the men and the women who did them say, wow, that's really encouraging. Thank you. You know, we want our lives to count for something. We want our lives to matter. James talks about our lives being like a vapor. He likens our life, the, the, the uh, length of our lives to a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then it's gone. It vanisheth away, he says. So Peter is understanding that a living for self-glory ultimately leads to loss. If you live for self-glory, temporal glory, you end up with nothing. But if you live for God's glory, it will be celebrated for for all of eternity. Now, think about this before I read the passage. Peter is talking to believers who are not receiving any glory in this lifetime. They are hated, despised, rejected. Belittled, ridiculed. They're losing their businesses. They're losing their house, houses. They're losing their their livelihood. They're losing their reputation. is gone as far as societally. Um, they're the enemy. Some of them are giving their lives. They're losing actually their physical lives. They they have no glory, and yet you and I have been created to glory. We've been created to glory. We've been created to honor. We've been created to this end. And the world lives for this. And you and I are prone to this as well. The world does not glory in God. And Peter's saying to them, while you may not have anything else to glory in, you can glory in God. You can glory in God. In fact, we'll read a little bit later, the psalmist would say, God, you are my glory. I have no other glory. You alone are my glory. Now let's look at the passage. First Peter chapter one. I'm going to begin reading in verse seven. I'm going to read down through verse 11. We're going to look at more verses than this this morning. But you're going to see the word glory show up three times in these verses. Verse seven down through verse 11. He says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who, would pro- who, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was, which, which, which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow. Peter is writing to people who have nothing to glory in. To some degree, we might even say they had nothing to live for. Just wait till they take your life. Just wait till they take your property. Just there's nothing to live for. There's no glory. Peter writes to them and he says, you have every reason to glory because the glory that you have is eternal. I think this is very important for us to be reminded of today. We don't live for the temporal passing glory of this world. Or the fading glory of our lives, our physical lives. We live for the glory of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, as we look at this passage. May it be unfolded before us by your Holy Spirit. May we learn. May it change us. May it change our attitude. May it change the way we go through life um, in this day in which we're living. And may we live as a church, this congregation of believers. May we live as a church for your glory. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the Bible says a lot about glory. Um, God is glorious, okay? We worship him and we uh, we laud him, we praise him because he is glorious, he is glory. Isaiah 42 and verse 8 says, God says this, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. So God is actually jealous about who he is. He's jealous about his glory. Uh, In other words, God is not willing to share his glory with um, anything other than himself. Uh, He alone is glorious. He's not willing to share his glory with those who seek to steal it for themselves. But God has designed to share part of his glory with those who humbly follow him and trust him. And that's his people. That's you and me. The glory of God, if I could define it this way, is the sum total of everything that God is. So glory is not another one of God's attributes. An attribute of God would be He is love. He is just. He is holy. Uh, He is righteous. He is good. He is mercy. He is gracious. These are attributes of God, but the glory of God is... (laughs) The sum total of all that God is. It's who he is. And so the psalmists in the Old Testament glorified God in this way. He says in Psalm 3 and verse 3, But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. And then he says this, My glory and the lifter up of mine head. Lord, you're my shield. You're the lifter up of my head. And you are my glory. In other words, the psalmist was saying, I'm not glorying in my accomplishments. I'm not glorying in my successes. I'm not finding my glory in my nation. I'm not finding my glory in my education. I'm not finding my glory in me. God, you are my glory. Again, in Psalm 62 and verse seven, the psalmist writes this in God is my salvation and my glory in God is my glory. Isn't that isn't that amazing? We don't often think this way. He goes on to say the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. God is my glory. So God reveals his glory to us in a number of ways. He he reveals his glory to us in creation. The heavens declare what? The glory of God. And the firmament showeth his handy. Uh, his creation. In his creation we see his glory. You know, when there are certain things I've purchased before or I've wanted to purchase, and I find myself considering the intricacy of the design, or how well it's made. And uh and I want to meet the people who made that. Why? Because they're, I'm impressed with what they've created. I'm impressed with their thought process. I'm impressed with what they could do, what they could accomplish with metal or with wood or something like that. I want to meet that person. Well, the heavens declare the glory of God. We get a glimpse into his glory by his creation. I also think of uh, the people of Israel. When we read it in the Old Testament about the people of Israel and how God chose them for himself. Now he provided for them. He told them, I will be your God, you will be my people. And uh, God, how God interacted with Israel, how he suffered long with them, how he brought them back to himself. And he was able to literally use other nations and kingdoms to work in the lives of his people, the people of Israel that shows gives us some insight into the glory of God, His mercy, His long suffering, and yet His justice and holiness. I think of uh, I think we get a glimpse into the mercy or the glory of God by how He interacts with you and me as a local church, as the bride of Christ today, Christians today throughout the world. We get some idea of the glory of God, His goodness, He His, his choosing us, His loving us, and so. In summary, and I'm going to give you this up front to tell you where we're going, when we believed in Jesus Christ, we were born for glory. When we believed upon him, we were born again for glory. He is keeping us for glory while we walk through this pilgrim way that is life. And as we obey God and experience trials, he is preparing us for glory someday. And then, as we love the Lord and trust Him and rejoice in Him, we can actually experience the glory of God in our lives personally today. Now, this was the message, in short, for these people who were suffering. God has saved you for His glory. God is keeping you for glory. He is using the trials that you're going through today to prepare you for glory. And you can glory in God today as you're suffering. That's the message. Let's look at it. I'm going to begin in verses two and three. And I want you to notice, first of all, that God saved us for glory. He saved us for glory and specifically he saved us for his glory. Look at verse two. He says, elect, he's talking to these suffering believers. He says, elect, the word elect means chosen, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the father. Through sanctification of the spirit, sanctification means to be set apart from something, worldliness, ungodliness, wickedness, rebellion. Through the sanctification of the spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then I love this statement here to these people who are suffering and not experiencing grace or peace. And he says, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. That's God's will for believers who are suffering. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope or a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, again, every time we look at one of these uh, observations about this idea of glory, do not lose sight of the audience. They are impoverished, rejected, hated, despised, lied about. They are receiving no glory. They are not liked. They are not loved. They are not appreciated. And Peter is saying to these people who are wrung out, there is glory to be had. And he begins by reminding them that God has saved them. And I'll go beyond that and say God chose them for glory. I think to be rejected is one of the worst things to be experienced in life. To be rejected by a family member. To be rejected by a group of people that you thought loved you, but then to be rejected. um, And they were being totally rejected by their societies. They were repulsive to their societies. And yet Peter tells them, well, maybe everybody else that you know is rejecting you. There is someone who actually chose you for himself, and he uses this term elect. Now, this is the wonderful doctrine of election. It's not something that we ought to be afraid of, something we ought to rejoice in. God chose us. He chose us, and he chose these believers. Election doesn't cancel out free will, and free will doesn't cancel out election. And I cannot fully describe it in a concise way that would make it simple. But as I look throughout scripture, I find that God in his sovereignty, giving man choice, and yet God in his sovereignty, while mankind has choice, he is still in absolute and complete control. And I noticed in the passage, Peter uses this as he speaks to these believers. The Holy Spirit of God uses this to encourage their hearts. Uh, uh, free will and election actually complement one another. God, and here's the simple truth, God is the initiator of our salvation. Second Peter 3 and verse 9 tells us that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, in, to Timothy, Paul wrote, he said, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. This is God's will. It was God's idea to save us. It was not our own. No man came up with the idea of salvation. No man came to the conclusion on his own that we were sinners and that we needed to be redeemed. No, God, God, this was God's plan. It was God's idea to save us. He chose to save us. And a lost sinner doesn't seek God. Romans chapter 3 tells us that in verse 10. It says this, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. God sought us. It is God who seeks the sinner. God in love who seeks the sinner. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. A man by the name of George Chadwick wrote this. I think it's worth my reading to you. It's brief, but thought-provoking. I think he summarizes this idea of election well and free will well. God choosing us. He says this, quote, I sought the Lord, and afterwards I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, it was I found by you. So Men seeking God, God seeking men. No man ever sought God without God seeking them first and moving in their heart to seek after him. You see, when we were when we were saved beyond this idea of election, we see the father choosing us, choosing these believers to save them. But also I notice in verse number two, we see that there's this sanctification of the spirit unto obedience Um, So we have the Father working in our salvation. We also have the Holy Spirit working in our salvation, and specifically in our sanctification. Uh, And he tells us that this election, this choosing of the Father to save us, is actually accomplished through the sanctification of the Spirit of God unto obedience. So when we were saved, God's Holy Spirit sanctified us, and he continues to sanctify us to this day. And why? So that we might obey the Lord. Look at verse number three, the latter part. We see not only the Father and the Spirit working, but also the Son. So we have the Trinity, God, one God, three persons, one God. It says here at the end of verse number number, uh, two, of of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, So we've been chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son. All three persons of God, the Godhead, working to what end? To save me. That's right. To save me. And I'm reminded of the psalmist who made the statement and asked the question, What is man that thou art mindful of him? God, why do you even think about me? Why do you even consider me? And here, Peter, and this is a beautiful, there's so much doctrine in this, this, this passage, I think, which is very important. We've touched on some of it, but don't lose sight of the practicality of this passage either. What is Peter communicating to these believers who are wrung out and seemingly have been forgotten? The thought is this, God, he chose you and his thoughts are of you. The Father chose you. The Spirit is sanctifying you. Jesus Christ paid for you. You are valuable to God. That is the message. And notice there in verse number three. Or verse number two, the latter part, he says, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Oh, I wonder how I wonder how they read that. I wonder how the tears might have flowed if there were believers gathering together with one another grace and peace. Was anybody being gracious to them? Did they have peace? Was it possible to have peace? Losing everything, being lied about continually, strangers in your own land? Was this peace possible? Grace and peace. This is yet this is the will of God for his people. God wants suffering saints to have grace and peace. So God saves us for glory, for his glory, but also so that we can share in his glory. Not only did he save us for his glory, but so that we could share in his glory. Look at verse number four. He saved us to what? Verse four, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. And that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. They're, they're losing everything. They're losing family. They're losing business. They're losing home, homes and land, belongings, possessions. They're losing everything. And what 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 is supposed to recalibrate our thoughts? How should a believer think? when they're going through this kind of suffering, and we're not there. There are fears, but we're not there. How is a believer supposed to think? And, And Peter reminds these believers to remember that God has saved us for glory, for his glory, and so that we can share in that glory someday. God has not only saved us, but he's also laid in store for us an eternal inheritance that's Not taxable. And it's not going to wear out. That's what he's telling us in verse four. An inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away. It can't be diminished in value. It's not going to depreciate. I'd like to think that everything I've ever bought will only appreciate, but that's not the case. Have you ever bought something and told your wife, I think this is going to gain value with time? Have you? Come on. You guys, you you play poker, some of these men. You've got your poker faces on. We've said that, haven't we? I think this is going to appreciate. And the truth is, it didn't appreciate at all. It lost value. And it's continuing to lose value. But this inheritance is eternal. This is different. So these believers are living it. Everything that they have valued, and this is human to value to, view, to value temporal things. Everything they value is being taken away from them. Their own lives are being taken away from them. And Peter, by the Spirit of God, Peter is reminding them that you have something that will never be taken away from you. It can never be taken away. It's not going to diminish in value. We might ask ourselves the question, am I a believer in Christ? And I would ask you that question. Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because this glory is for those who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we were born into this, phys- this world physically, but we were not born for glory when we were born into this world physically. The life of man is compared to a shadow and grass. As men, we like to think of ourselves as being strong, robust. Now I can do that. Yeah, I can hit it that far. Yeah, I can make that shot. Yeah, I can cut that down. Sure, I can build that. We like to think of ourselves that way, but what what has, is happening? This past week, my dad and I cut down a couple of trees with a, a gentleman in the church. We all lived through it. That was good. And uh, the next day, my dad called me up, and he kind of had this tone of voice when he called me, and he said, "How are you feeling?" But he knew how I was feeling. I'm sore. I'm still sore. I sit at a desk too much, apparently. Still sore. You know what these bodies, they do. They break down. We don't run as fast as we used to. We eat as much as we used to. We don't run as fast. You know, we can't see as well. These bodies. We don't even, the glory that is in these physical bodies even goes away. Psalm 102 and verse 11, the psalmist writes, My days are like a shadow that declineth, and I am withered like grass. I'm declining. There's no glory in the physical. Psalm 103 verse 15 says, As for man, his days are as grass as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. Even men who are seemingly successful are likened to grass and a fading flower in the word of God. I'm talking about impressive men. I'm talking about wealthy men. I was thinking this week of some of the men, some of the titans of the past, like Rockefeller and Carnegie and J.P. Morgan and these sort of men. And We have men like that today, different kinds of business today, but whether it be the Bill Gates or... um, um, Mark Zuckerberg these kind these are these men i mean the, the amount of influence they have on the world is immense they are titans the amount of money is incomprehensible for you and for me so what does the bible say and we might say our world would say well these men have glory these men have honor these men have ability and influence some of us would say i don't have much of that the believers in this passage would have said i'm having none of that Well, listen to what the Bible says about those who are wealthy. In James 1, it says in verse 10, But the rich, in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass, just like the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways." And whatever feeble glory a man has today will someday fade and disappear but the glory of God is eternal and that's the truth Peter is it wants us to know and wants these believers who were suffering then to know think about this the unsaved of our day live for the glory that is temporal and it is fleeting a new vehicle a new house it's temporal, health, physical fitness. There's it, there's an importance to that, but it's temporal. And that and here's the truth for an unsaved man. That's all he has. All he has is what he has now. And Peter is saying to these believers, you have a whole lot more than you're counting. You're looking around at what you don't have. You're looking around at what you might lose. And know this, what you might lose, you are going to lose. You can't keep it. This life and all that it has in it is temporal unless you live for the glory of God. And even if you may have next to nothing, as these believers did, you can still live for the inheritance that is eternal in heaven that is incorruptible, that can never be taken away. There is some glory that fades away. That is the temporal glory of this earth, but the glory of God's eternal. The selfish works of sinners, no matter how impressive they may be, will someday pass away while the works of man done for the glory of God will last forever and ever. First John 2, it says this. In verse 17, and the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So here's the question for you and for me Are we living for the glory of God? Or are we living for the temporal? Some of us are white knuckling it because we might lose the temporal. They had lost it. They didn't have it anymore. They had no glory, no respect. And Peter's saying to them, God has saved you for glory, for his glory, and for you to share in that glory someday. Secondly, God keeps us for his glory. I'm thankful this is here. God keeps us for his glory. Look at verse 5. He says, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, We know that a person is saved by faith, by putting their confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Look again at the beginning part. You are kept by the power of God. Is it a sure thing that somebody who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is going to heaven someday? Yes or no? Yes, it is. Why? Why? is that assurance based on our works. It's based on his keeping us by his power. That's what it's based on. Now, when a person to be saved, of course, God sent his son to die on the cross for the sins of the whole world. To be saved... A man needs to exercise faith to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But once a man has put his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, his salvation is now God's responsibility. I'm not going to heaven someday because I preach messages. I'm not going to heaven someday because of physical works that I'm doing in this world. I, as a young boy, believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, received the word of God, the promises of God's word, the truth of God's word about my sinfulness and God's holiness. And yet his love for me and sending his son to die for me on the cross. And guess what? My salvation after believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ is now God's responsibility. Now, I'm okay with that. I'm really okay with that. Because I don't want my salvation to be anybody else's responsibility. I don't want my salvation to be based upon any of your works, okay? And I love you and I respect you. But I don't want my salvation, whether I'm going to heaven or not, to be based upon what you do or what I do at this point. No, no, it's God's responsibility. Heaven is a sure thing. The word kept, look at that word in verse number five. It's a military term and it means guarded or shielded. God himself is our assurance that we will arrive in heaven someday. Our faith in Christ has so united us with Christ that his his power guides us and his power guards us. In John John 10, in verse 28, Jesus said this, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I I love that. My salvation, I am in God's hand and my father, no man can pluck me out of my father's hand. Ian, do you remember when I used to hold something inside my hand and uh, you were little and you would play the game, you try to open my fingers and get it out. you remember that? All right. The, the children, when they were young, I used to lay on the couch or sit there and they would all gather around me. They were just little munchkins. And uh, and I would put something in my hand, or nothing, for that matter. I could just say, see if you can open Daddy's hand. And Tori would come along and she would, you know, and Ian would be prying. And it was cute, uh, but they couldn't do anything. As they got older, they realized that I was sensitive to some pain. And so they would begin to pry the finger in the wrong direction, you know. So it's not that funny, Mr. Dunsire. Really... <laughs> But uh, it was really cute at the time to be able to play that game because when I was a, a dad, still am, but when, at that time in being a father, at that time as, as a father, with them being young and small and weak, I was strong enough they couldn't open my hand. Um, now we don't play the game anymore. But But our Heavenly Father, your Heavenly Father, if you put your faith and trust in Him, Christ describes us that way, that we are kept, in the hollow of his hand, and no man, not any other man, and not even you, can remove you from the hollow of your father's hand. That's a glorious truth, kept, guarded. Um, In John 14, verse 2, Jesus talks about this plan of us being with him. Uh, He's keeping us for glory. This is his plan. It says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there, ye may be also in John 17, Jesus praying to his father. He said this in verse 24, father, I will that they also talking about you and me, his disciples whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. This has always been the desire of God. For his creation to be with him. This has always been the plan. That they may behold my glory, he says, that thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. The Ephesians talks about us being sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. We are sealed under the day of redemption. The point is this. We belong to God and God will bring us to glory. And Peter's telling these believers, you're suffering now, but you belong to God and God is going to bring you to glory. This is not all that there is. You need to know that. What they currently have for the unsaved is all the glory they will ever have. They will suffer forever apart from the glory of God. If suffering today, though, means glory tomorrow, then suffering actually to a degree becomes a blessing to us. God saved us for his glory and he's keeping us for his glory. And thirdly, God is preparing us for glory. He's using the suffering of today to prepare us for glory someday. Look at verses six and seven. This is amazing. He says, wherein ye greatly rejoice. That is, God's keeping us for glory. Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. This is something those believers needed to know, and it's something you and I need to know. Every trial of this life, God allows in our lives to prepare us for glory someday. Every trial. Hit your thumb with a hammer. You say, well, that was my fault. Yes, it was. And God's using it to prepare you for glory. And I'm going to intermingle these illustrations unintentionally. It's not just the car broke down for no reason. And so we're going to let God have credit for that one. But when I forgot to air up the tire or ignored the hissing sound coming out of the valve stem, that was on me. Well, yes, it is on you. You should have changed it and should have fixed it. But you know what? Regardless if you fixed it then or you go driving down the road and you have to deal with it, then it's still God using it to prepare you for glory. See, free will and the sovereignty of God, they go together. And I can't I can't simply and I'm not even sure complexly uh, describe that, but they go together. God is preparing us for glory. All that God plans and performs here on earth is preparation for what he has in store for us in heaven. God is preparing you and me for a life of service someday to worship him and to love him. Yes, it is a place of rest, and yet it is a place of service, bringing glory to God for all of eternity. None of us completely comprehends all that awaits us in heaven. But we do know that this life is a school in which God is training us for our future service and glory. There's a couple observations I want to make from verse six. The first is this trials meet needs that we have. Trials meet needs that we have. Look at verse number six, the middle part, and notice the phrase if need be. Do you see it in verse six? Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be. ye are in heaviness. Now, who gets to choose what we need? Have you been choosing what you need? How many of us chose this year that we needed uh, to have uh, Dominion voting machines? How many of us chose this year to, we came into 2020 last year and this year that we wanted to wear masks? We thought that would be helpful for us for spiritual growth. How many of us thought that? Come on. Anybody? No. How many of us thought that we needed, and I could name political leaders or political leaders. See, we would make choices. We do make choices. And yet God is choosing to allow things to happen. He's, remember who he's talking to here. He's talking to believers. Some of them are being put to death. They're losing everything. And Peter's words, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God to them, are this. If needs, If need be. Apparently, God was choosing to allow them to suffer because it needed to happen. We don't look at it that way. We say, well, no, I know what I need, and I know what I don't need, and I know I don't need, and the list can be long. And Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is saying, no, apparently you do need to go through this. God knows that there are times when we need to go through trials. We're living in a time in a nation that is the United States of America where the immorality is obvious, the disunity is obvious, the deception is obvious, and it's not new, by the way. Those are words that could be used to describe pretty much every nation that's ever been on the face of the earth at times, sometimes more than others. But you know what? God's, and this is not defending immorality or disunity. Or hatred for one another. I'm not defending those things. But God is using those things because apparently we need to live through this. We need to grow closer to him. We need to seek him more fervently. We need to love him more fervently. We need to love one another more fervently. Apparently, if need be, if God chooses To bring us into something like this, it is something that he has chosen according to his divine plan that we need to go through it. God knows what we need to go through. God knows that we need different trials for different reasons. Trials discipline us when we disobey God. Psalm 119.67, the psalmist writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. The affliction's been helpful. The discipline's been helpful. Trials prepare us to grow spiritually. Do you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's talking about this thorn in the flesh. He calls him a messenger of Satan to buffet him, which has the idea of repeated blows. Closed fists, repeated blows. And uh, Paul, in the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, lest I should be exalted above measure, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet. Lest I should be exalted above measure. For Paul, he's very transparent with us. It was for his own personal pride. Lest he become a proud man, God allowed a messenger of Satan to repeatedly beat him, not necessarily physically, So that Paul would be a humble man. The point is this. God knew what Paul needed. And God knows what you need. And he knows what I need. And the amazing thing, one of the amazing things about God is he is over all. He is not limited by anything. He used a king who thought he was in control, Nebuchadnezzar, to help bring Israel back into line. To give Israel what they needed. He's been doing this all throughout human history. As as a parent, you know, if one of my children disobeys, it's we call it a reminder, you know, a reminder stick. There are these little glue sticks that are flexible so as not to abuse or hurt the child. But, you know, my dad used a belt and those sort of things, and and there's a proper way to discipline a child. But for me, there's only certain things I can use to help bring my children to obedience, you know. There's corporal punishment, like the Bible would say, a spanking, as some would call it. Um, There's, uh, you can't play with your Legos for a week. There's, I'm going to take your phone away. And then there's actually doing that. Okay. Different, only, I'm pretty limited in what I can use for disciplinary purposes with my children. God's not limited what he can use. Well, who is in charge? Who is behind this? What's their motivation? What are they trying to do? Is it another government? Is it this? You know what? I don't know. It might be all the above. It might be none of the above. I really don't know. I have my opinions and you really don't care about those. But you know what? God is using all of it, if needs be. I also see that trials are varied. Trials are varied. You see in verse six, he says manifold. Year in heaviness through manifold temptations. Manifold means many colored, a whole variety of trials and temptations, hardships and griefs. God uses all kinds of trials, according to his understanding, to meet the needs that he knows that we have. What are some of the trials that you faced recently? Or maybe you're facing right now. What is God using? What is God? How is God using those trials to work in your life? What is he using to accomplish in your life? I also see that trials are difficult. And I want to make mention of this in verse six. Maybe I don't need to say this, but look at verse six. He says, ye are in heaviness. Lupeo is the word for heaviness. Lupeo through manifold temptations. Trials are difficult. The word heaviness or lupeo means to experience grief and pain. Paul talked to the church at Thessalonica about this when they were saying goodbye to a loved one. And he said to them, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye lupeo not, that ye are heavy not, or sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. There's sorrow when someone passes away. Peter's not suggesting in our con- in, in the passage that we take a careless attitude toward trials; that we would be. Dis- I think that would be deceptive. I think it's wrong to look at a trial and say that's not a big deal. Don't lie about it. It is a big deal. Don't sweep it under the rug. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't be dramatic about it either, I suppose, on the other side. But trials often do produce pain. They do produce grief. And I think to deny that trials are painful is actually to make them worse. And by the way, sometimes something that's a trial for me, that brings me heaviness, J.G. Eventu may look at that and say, well, I don't know what pastor's problem is. That's not that big of a deal. Or maybe something that would bring J, heaviness, grief, I might, not knowing the full story or just being a different individual, look at Jay's heaviness and think, I don't know why that's bringing him such grief. And we need to be careful of that as believers. Because we're at different stages of spiritual growth and different walks of life with different upbringings, different perspectives. We need to be careful when we see a fellow brother in Christ grieving over something. The answer is not just, hey, get with it, you know. I don't know what your problem is. I don't, think that, I don't think that's a problem for Trinity Baptist Church. I think I find in Trinity a heart of empathy and sympathy for one another. But what's, 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 what brings one man heaviness? In this, this last year, there were some things that came about that I had a hard time understanding. Why that would bring heaviness. But a brother in Christ was heavy, broken. Upset? How do I, how do I interact with that brother in Christ? Do I seek to assist, to grieve with, to seek to understand? Let's understand that there are hurts and there are griefs in life, and let's not put on an act to appear spiritual. I, I think that is the most unspiritual thing to do. In fact, I'd even say it's unChrist-like. It's important sometimes to grieve. It's natural and normal. And not wrong at all to hurt and to grieve. In fact, I'll, I'll 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 illustrate it to you through Matthew 26 and verse 36, and we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. As the Bible says, There then cometh Jesus with them, his apostles, unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. In verse 37 of Matthew 26, the Bible says, And Jesus took with him Peter. And the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and began, listen to this, began to be sorrowful. Talking about Jesus, not James and John, not Peter. Jesus began to be sorrowful, full of sorrow, and very lupeo, heavy. Grief. Well, we could say, well, of course, that was Jesus. He knew he was about to become the sins of the whole world. And I might say in response, he also knew that he was going to raise from the dead. He also knew that heaven was his home and he was going to someday rule and reign over all the earth. So why is Jesus heavy? Because he was a human being. Because he was God, about to become sin. My point is this, sometimes, friends, as Peter is honest with these believers, he says, for a time, if need be, You're going through a time of trial and hardship and grief, and there is a sense of heaviness. And you are broken. You're full of grief. You're overwhelmed with grief. He's being very honest about what the reality is. This is important. I also notice in verse 6 that trials are controlled by God. He says in verse 6, you see it there, for a season. I'm so thankful that's there. Seasons don't last forever. Somebody told me today they like Michigan because it has four distinct seasons. And I said, yes, it does. As the parking lot is showing. Four distinct seasons. Well, the season of trials doesn't last forever. And Peter illustrates this in verse 7. Illustrates it in verse 7. Look there. He says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. He, he he likens going through a trial to gold being purified in a furnace. The uh, In the East, the, uh, the men who would work with gold, they would take the gold and they would put it into the furnace. And they, it's written of the men in the East who would work with gold like this that they would Heat the gold, they would keep the gold in the furnace long enough so that they could see their own reflection in the gold. And I really believe that's what God wants to do with us. And the Lord Jesus Christ wants to see his reflection in you and me. What reflection is he seeing? How are we responding to the trials, the trying of our faith that the Holy Spirit says is more valuable than gold? How are we responding? Are we Are responding angrily, with animosity, hatred? Or are we seeing it as this is actually God is using this? And God, would you have your own will and your own way in my life? And by the way, throughout the Bible, we find this to be true. Abraham in the Old Testament is going to sacrifice Isaac. You remember? And in that trial, what did did Abraham learn? He learned that God would provide. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you remember, while they're there in a pagan land, they're asked to bow down and worship. And these three Hebrew boys say, you know what? We can't do that. We only worship one God. We're not going to bow down. Well, that's fine. Threw them into the fiery furnace. Heat it up. And throw them in. And guess what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found out in their trial? That they're not alone. That God is with them. You see, there are things to learn through the trials. The unsaved individual looks at the trial and looks at the things of this life. And this is all he has. You take this away and it's all He has. He has nothing else. There is no other glory. And Peter's saying to these believers who have lost so much of the temporal or all, temporal already, and he's saying to them, Glory awaits you. And this is not your glory. This is not glory. God is your glory. And He has saved you for it. And he, He's keeping you for it and He's preparing you for glory. I want you to look at verses 8 and 9 as we close. And I think this is sort of, is honorable for these believers who are being tried. And I'll end with this. God desires that we enjoy his glory now. God desires that we enjoy his glory now. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says this. Whom having not seen, ye love. Talking about they haven't seen Christ personally physically, but they love him anyway. And whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, Ye rejoice with joy, unspeakable and full of glory. Receiving the end. And that this has the idea, verse 9 has the idea of you are receiving the end of your faith. Even the salvation of your souls. This is all part. God's using all of this worldliness, hate, um, rejection, Persecution. He's using it all to accomplish your salvation. It's part of it. Is it possible for a child of God to enjoy God while living life on this earth during hard times? I mean, is it possible to really enjoy him? Are trials of this life going to rob me of joy? That is part of the fruit of the Spirit and of love, and of peace. While I chase after the glory that's slipping out of my fingers, my control. God wants us to enjoy him, even in the present. And how do we do that? Well, I see it through the testimony of these people. And Peter, the Holy Spirit, through Peter, tells us about these people. In whom having not seen ye love. How do you enjoy the glory of God now? You love Christ, first and foremost. More than the possessions. More than the so-called liberties. More than the flag. More than physical health. You love Christ more than that, than all of that. And by the way, you say, well, I can't. That's not true. Yes, you can. Throughout history, in different parts of the world, believers, God's people, have been, have been imprisoned, Put on the rack, trampled under be- by beasts, dragged behind chariots, um, devoured by wild animals, burned at the stake. Okay, and there are uh, there are other accounts outside of scripture of believers being led to the stake and fastened to a pole with the with the uh, the wood piled up around them, and those believers praying and crying out to the Lord verbalizing their love for Christ. Last week I reminded you of what Peter reminded his wife of as she was being crucified. Remember our Lord. What about him? Remember his love. Remember his sacrifice. All of it points to his love. And what Peter was doing is he was reminding his wife, love Christ. Love Christ. And that's what you and I need to do. Love the Lord. We love God because he first loved us. His love was shed abroad in our hearts, according to Romans chapter 5. And if we love ourselves more than we love Christ, we will not experience God's glory now. We'll grow bitter. We'll grow disheartened. And so when we are faced with a trial, it's important for us to immediately lift up our heads and choose to love Christ and worship Christ. Why? Because he's working in our lives for his glory and ours. Trust him. He goes on to say in verse eight, ye love in whom though now ye see him not yet believing, believing means to surrender all to God and obey his word despite the circumstances or consequences. Love and faith, by the way, go together. When we love somebody, we trust them. Faith and love together helps to strengthen hope. And where we find faith and love in Christ, we'll find confidence in the future. Some of us have lost any confidence for the future. It's almost like there is no God. How do we grow in faith during times of suffering? The same way we grow in faith during times when things seem to be going well, by feeding on his word, so faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. One of the most basic principles of Christian living is to spend much time in God's word. When Satan is tempting us, And when God is testing us, Charles Spurgeon wrote this little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. And you see, when we love Christ and we trust Christ, it leads to rejoicing. You see it in verse eight. Ye rejoice with joy unspeakable. I can't even put it into words, your joy. I I can't understand it. And full of what? glory. You can have it now. I can have it now. I can experience the glory of God. I can enjoy God today in a sin-cursed world where evil men battle about what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. And this is not a new truth. This is something that Peter was telling these believers some 2,000 years ago. Rejoice in the glory of God now. God is telling us, live for the glory of God. Not this earth. It's fleeting. It's passing. Live for the glory of God. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet and take your hymnals and turn to hymn number 487.